2: A weekly look at the issues in the news and the personality shaping the stories. Thank you for joining me on Special Edition. I'm Paula Dagnan. This week we're going to be meeting Ted O'Con. He is the Executive Director, Community Oncology Alliance. Ted is going to tell us about President Biden's Build Back Better Act proposal and the impact that it could have on community cancer care across the country. This week, talking about cancer, we'll meet Dr. Matthew Factor. He is a thoracic surgeon and the director of the lung cancer screening program in the Geisinger Health System. It's a low dose CT scan that's quick, easy, and painless. Dr. Factor will tell us who's eligible for the lung cancer screening and more details about lung cancer. Starting off today on Special Edition, we're going to welcome Dr. Michelle Wonders. She's the clinical director at Devereux Pocono, and we're getting set to head into the holiday. For some, they can't wait, but for others, not so much. She's going to give us some tips and suggestions on holiday blues and holiday depression. Michelle, you're here once again, and today we're going to shift the focus just a little bit and talk about... Holiday blues.
1: First, I want to say thank you for having me back. Yeah, the holiday blues. Definitely, this is uh, this time of the year, um, the holidays, when the weather starts to turn colder. Days aren't shorter, but the sunlight is definitely shorter, um, people can really start to struggle um, with their mental health during this time of the year. So, um, yeah, you you had just mentioned the holiday blues. Some people have seasonal um, affective disorder, seasonal depression, and um, also just struggling with the difficulties around the holidays. Sometimes the pressure of being busier increases, um, financial stressors can become more apparent, and, and really just, in the last couple of years, changes in family dynamics and not being able to be with family and things like that really come into play.
2: Many people will say, just suck it up. Just deal with it. It's not that easy.
1: It really is not that easy. And and for people who do say, well, just snap out of it or just look at the bright side of things. Um, You you are very right. It really isn't that easy for some. But there are things that we can do to help mitigate some of those um, stressors and factors. And if we really develop good tools to keep in our toolbox, then we can get through it um, and maybe even enjoy the holidays for those who do get that seasonal depression.
2: I like the idea of the toolbox. So yeah. do we start one compartment of the toolbox and say, this compartment is for financial stressors? What would we do there?
1: One of the things that's very, very important when you're thinking about the financial aspect and the financial pressures uh, is really to set a good budget for spending around the holidays. Uh, It really is the thought that counts. And even some handmade gifts, this would be a good time for people to break out their knitting needles and things like that. People love to receive um, heartfelt and handmade gifts, even if you're giving somebody some home-baked cookies or things like that. But really trying to um, set a budget of spending. Don't go into a lot of credit card debt over the holidays. May feel like you're you're not spending that money when you're spending it in December, but that bill is going to come in January. So definitely set um, a realistic budget, and also learn to set some boundaries. Uh, learn to say no. It can be very difficult to say no when people are asking us to um, go to multiple events or purchase things or donate money, um, you know, really can leave you feeling overwhelming and maybe even resentful. So, um, people will understand if you can't participate in every activity that is going on. So it really is, um, important to learn to say no and, uh, set those boundaries for yourself.
2: And in that compartment is another little compartment. And in that compartment, it's, I always have to be perfect. Perfect.
1: We definitely have that high bar for ourselves. And, you know, one of the things about that is we have so much of a a higher bar for ourselves than even we would for others. So uh, some of this that we tell ourselves in our mind, you would never say that to another person. So you really need to um, practice some self-compassion here and realize that. The Hallmark Christmas that you're seeing on the Hallmark channel. No offense to the Hallmark channel, I love it, but um, it isn't always reality. What you're seeing on social media, people are posting their perfect Christmas tree and all of those things. You know, some people do just put their best foot forward on social media when everybody has the reality that things are not always perfect in our lives and to really just yourself some slack with that as well.
2: Now, Dr. Michelle, we're going to move over and we're going to have another little compartment. And this compartment is going to be, I'm missing someone.
1: Definitely. The holidays can really um, accentuate the fact that we maybe have lost loved ones, maybe in the distant past or even maybe in the last couple years during COVID, um, that can be a really difficult time. And and really, uh, I tell people to really try to think of what family traditions there are um, that you have or even create some new ones to really honor those memories of those people. Um, if someone close to you has recently passed away or you can't be with your loved ones because of even COVID-related situations or um, distance or things like that, just realize it's normal to feel that sadness or to feel that grief. And acknowledge that. You don't have to force yourself to be happy just because it's the holiday season. Sometimes if we try to do that, it can really cause us to feel guilty that we're not. Well, it's the holidays. I should be happy. And I try to get people to get that word should out of their vocabulary. But to really acknowledge those feelings and find ways to honor the memories of people who can't be with us is really important. And use that Zoom and uh, FaceTime and all of those good things to really reach out and see people face to face.
2: And right next to that little box is the next box. And I'm glad you said, see people face to face, because in that box is, I don't want to see those people face to face. Now, what do I do?
1: (laughs) Oh, that's so true. Sometimes uh, there can be such a thing as too much togetherness. uh, And and that kind of goes back to being able to set those boundaries, saying no, um, if it's something that. Uh, is in a good situation or can make you feel stressed or anxious, you can kind of be the, the author of this chapter of your book. And you can say that we're we're going to go to this party and we're going to spend an hour there and then we're going to excuse ourselves and leave. You can kind of decide how much is too much for you. It's okay. Give yourself permission to set those boundaries. Definitely.
2: Along those same lines too, around the holidays people have a tendency sometimes to overindulge in things. And some of those things can create other problems. So how do you kind of work your way around those when there are some people who say, doesn't bother me, I don't have a problem.
1: Exactly. Um, I mean, really don't abandon the healthy habits that you've spent all year developing. Some people say, Oh, after, after the holidays are over, I have to lose that 10 pounds that I gained over the holidays. I have to make a New Year's resolution to cut out the sugar or stop drinking or quit smoking or whatever it is. And you don't have to abandon the progress that you've made during the holidays. So really, um, you know, don't let it become a free for all. As you said, that overindulgence or indulgence, possibly really can add to your stress level. So um, really thinking about what those triggers might be in those situations and really plan for, for them ahead of time you know say it is you're trying to maintain a healthy diet or uh, say someone has diabetes and they're going to um, a party you know make sure that there's a healthy snack there available even bring your own you know you could bring a a plate to share with others that could be something that you could safely eat or things like that but really making sure you're getting plenty of sleep you're getting regular physical activity and again you know moderate imbibing on the uh, beverages um and also making sure you're using all of your uh, coping strategies if those are things that you can't um, indulge in, for sure.
2: And it, what do we do, Michelle, when it comes down to, I need all of this in order to be happy? What is happy?
1: Right. I think that that's a really good question that everybody needs to address individually. And I think really thinking about the things that are important to you around the holidays, um, especially around Thanksgiving, that's a really good time to stop and really take stock of what's going on. What are those things that you are thankful for? Um, having a regular gratitude practice can really make a big difference in your day to day attitude. A lot of people start on November 1st and then through the whole month of November every day, um, you know, think of something that they're grateful for. Uh, that can really change your mood and your, and your attitude to that you're, gra- you're grateful for what you already have.
2: What happens when you decide for yourself that maybe I don't want to put myself out there that much this year for whatever reason? How would you talk to people and kind of explain that to them? Because again, and it should be should, there's that word again shoulda, woulda, coulda, wonderful.
1: There's that word again. Definitely. Um, anybody who I've done counseling with who is listening to this conversation right now will be laughing because I really do, um, tell them we're not going to use that word should anymore because the word should causes you to feel guilty that you. So what I tell people is talk in terms of what you want to do or what you're going to do as opposed to what you should do. So there are times that we're, we're going to be around other people. We're going to be exposed to some of these events and things like that, but it is okay to, you know, talk with people about how you're feeling or or just say, Hey, you know, this year I'm going to keep it a little bit more low key and I'm going to cut back a little bit on the amount of gifts or I'm going to cut back on um, the amount of parties that I'm attending or things like that. People do understand that if you're pretty upfront about it. Without having to go into a lot of detail, if you do have depression or anxiety or things like that, you don't necessarily have to um, divulge all of that unless you're comfortable. But people do understand that everybody is at a different place. with what they can handle right now and
2: anytime. And anytime, because Mm -hmm. even though it seems to be exasperated around this time of the year, Things like this can happen anytime, and especially people who are dealing with grief, it comes in such big waves that sometimes you just have to walk away.
1: That's very true. Sometimes you do. You just need to take that time for yourself. And it's really important to be aware of that in yourself. So to really be reflecting, uh, thinking about, you know, what, what do I need to be okay right now? What things can I do to take care of myself? And really, um, it's a really important to try to maintain as much of the regular routine as possible, especially if we're talking about even families who have children with special needs or uh, foster families or that have uh, children in foster care, trying to really maintain um, that stability and a good routine, um, involve them in decisions and in, in deciding and what activities are going to be you know, engaged in and things like that. Those things are all really important to um, to even help younger folks who are having some mental health challenges.
2: And again, at this time of the year, you don't like to think about it, but suicide is a reality. And if there is someone struggling like that, where can they turn, Michelle? So
1: this can be a really uh, difficult time for people, but we, there is the National Suicide um, Life Prevention Lifeline um, Again, they could always call 911, go to their nearest emergency room, talk with somebody about how they're feeling, reach out to a mental health professional. Um, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, uh, the number is 1 800. They could always reach out to that, reach out to uh, a a mental health professional or a friend. Honestly, uh, uh, you know, speaking to a friend who can also maybe talk to you, give you support, guide you in getting some help. People don't have to feel alone. There is help available.
2: Michelle, anything that you would like to add? At
1: Devereux, we're still coming along nicely with our foster care program. So we are always still seeking Wonderful foster parents who could open their home to a child, especially around the holidays. There, I mean, there's a great need, um, in our area and across the country for foster families. So if, um, anybody is interested in becoming a, a foster family, uh, they could call us at Deborah, um, at 272-228-0374. We also have a dedicated email address and it's Foster Care Poconos at Devereaux.org Foster Care Poconos at Devereaux.org
2: Always a pleasure to have Dr. Michelle Wonders, Clinical Director at Devereaux Pocono to join us and if you would like a holiday event there's one coming up at the Rosetti Estate on Vine Street in Scranton Friday, December 17th. There will be barbershop quartets, sing-alongs and you can find out more at rosettiarts.org Don't go away. Lung Cancer Screening next on Special Edition. Now on Special Edition, lung cancer is not just for smokers. Dr. Matthew Factor, Thoracic Surgeon and Director of the Lung Cancer Screening Program at the Geisinger Health System, joins us to tell us about the screening program and who could benefit. Dr. Matthew Factor, thank you so much for joining me today. And I've heard so much about lung cancer, some folks that I've known that's been, unfortunately, the cause of their deaths Give us an overview on where lung cancer is right now. Again, it's so much different than it was many years ago. So, how are things progressing?
3: Well, uh, first of all, thank you very much, Paula, for uh, for having me on and 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 having a moment to talk about lung cancer. We realize first and foremost that lung cancer naturally carries with it a big stigma um, because of its heavy association with smoking and the tendency to place blame on the person who may or may not have been a smoker. Obviously, it is a huge risk factor for lung cancer. However, any one of us can get lung cancer. So if you have lungs, you can get lung cancer. And it's just been swept under the carpet for far, far too long. You'll probably remember in the early 60s that the Surgeon General of the United States declared tobacco smoking a carcinogen and and yet still a legal product today and obviously still uh, heavily prominent in our community. Having said that, we are finally making headway on screening, which is really what our topic is today. Uh, We're all familiar with with mammogram for breast and and colonoscopy for colon, prostate blood tests or physical exams, uh, pap smears for cervical cancer, and uh, even skin exams for melanoma. But yet none of them have as clear and and heavy-weighted evidence Towards the benefit of screening compared to lung cancer. Because of the scrutiny for lung cancer, it took a long time to provide uh, data uh, to that end. But getting back to your question, so lung cancer is the number one cancer killer in the United States. It's actually in the world as well, but we'll just talk about United States today. More specifically, lung cancer every year kills more people than the combination of breast colon and prostate cancers. It's number one and it kills more than the numbers two, three, and four cancers. And as I mentioned earlier, there's clearly a high risk factor, that being smoking or around here, a coal miner or somebody else in a heavy industry with lots of pollution. And yet we haven't screened for it you know, until relatively recently. But it's a, the number one killer and obviously deserves much more attention than it has received over the past. Now, as far as treatment, you're right. It's one of the deadliest cancers. Roughly 20% or fewer people survive their lung cancer diagnosis. But if it's caught early in the first or second stages, cure rates are you know much, much higher than 20%, more like 70 to 90%. Not quite as good as some other cancers, but still very good. So the key is finding it earlier. And that's where screening comes in. Yes, treatment has changed significantly, not only surgical techniques, uh, robotic surgery like we do, highly sophisticated radiation like stereotactic radiation in the medications, chemotherapy, and now immunotherapy. And in fact, it's been very exciting. In lung cancer the past maybe five or more years with the development of immunotherapies, which is medicine, just fancier, different kind of medicine using our own immune system, making incredibly significant strides in survival, even for late stage lung cancer patients.
2: When we talk about screenings, there's always a certain group of people who say, I never smoked. Why would I get lung cancer? What about people who live with smokers? You also mentioned the whole idea of pollution. I think we fit in there somewhere. That's correct. And so
3: important to move away from stigmatizing it because that won't help Anybody, of course. And literally, that has led to much fewer in the way of research dollars for lung cancer. When it is the number one cancer killer, far and above the next three, clearly we should be doing something different. And as you mentioned, it is not all about smoking. And we have a tendency to, oh, you have lung cancer. Did you smoke? And again, it's still, you know, 80 to 90% of folks with lung cancer have a smoking history or Secondhand smoking history. And then, of course, you know, maybe in their workplace, whether it's a previously heavy smoking bar, mentioned coal mining or any other industry where there's heavy pollution, even that big black puff of smoke behind the semi truck or somebody's jacked up pickup truck, they squirt out that big black heavy smoke. That ain't good for our lungs. Our lungs are air filters for us. And, you know, every time we inhale that ugly stuff, even being too close to a bonfire, you know, for too long, just imagine what's going on inside the lungs being hit with that sort of pollution, if you will. So we are all at risk. And just like any cancer, it really only takes one cell, one bad actor, one bad transaction as the cells divide and and reproduce. If one of them is a rogue cell, that's the beginning of cancer. And quite frankly, it's a miracle that one would go through life and never have a Cancer, you know, never have one error in a cell that somehow, you know, led to a cancer. Not all errors in cell reproduction lead to cancer because our body has ways of defeating the rogue cells. But if it's, you know, truly, truly a rogue, rogue, it'll survive and and become a cancer.
2: That's why I wanted you to reemphasize that because I didn't want anybody who heard us talk about lung cancer immediately say, Oh, that doesn't apply to me, and then miss out on the information that you're going to tell us as far as screening is concerned. And how exciting is this? Because again, mammograms every year, colonoscopies every so many years. Is it going to be the same thing with lung cancer screening now? It is a little bit different. And I will just
3: preface that by saying it's a little bit unfortunate because it's going to come
2: off as sounding a little bit complicated compared to what you just mentioned. Because the first thing that comes to my mind is in all of those, do you have a family history? So now here we are with lung cancer. Does the same question get asked?
3: Yes, the the same question gets asked. And Right now, a family history of lung cancer is not an eligibility criteria.
2: That's something a little bit different. So who would be criteria then?
3: It is currently based solely upon being or having been A smoker. So in other words, the highest risk group, you know, generalizing it across a population. So a smoker. Now, if you quit more than 15 years ago, no longer eligible. Yes, the risks do go down over time, but many of us would argue if you've ever been a smoker, you should be eligible. And then the current ages. Uh, as of this year are from age 50 to 80 and what we consider to be a heavy smoker. And this, this is a little bit odd, but the way we calculate that, and it's very rough to make it a perfect calculation, but we use what are called pack years. So 30 or more pack years of smoking history is what has traditionally qualified. But as of this year, it's now down to 20. Here's what I mean. If you smoke one pack a day and you've smoked for 20 years, that's one pack times 20 years equals 20 pack years. If you smoke half a pack a day times 20 years, that would be 10 pack years and not eligible for screening. Yes, it sounds a little complicated and odd, but those are the highest risk people. Don't forget there are harms to doing screening. So we, or those who are Setting these policies are trying to keep it safe as well. So anyway, fifty to eighty, at least a twenty pack year smoking history, and active smoking or has have smoked within the last fifteen years. It's really those three items right there. So
2: what is the screening then? Because you can take a chest X ray if you think that you might have pneumonia. How is the lung cancer screening going to work then?
3: So we use what is referred to as a CAT scan or CT scan. So this is an x-ray, been around for a long time, specifically a low-dose CT, much less than the standard CT scan radiation. CT or CAT just stands for computer-assisted tomography. Very, very easy, simple for the person. So there's no IV, there's nothing to drink. You do not have to get undressed. Get on the little table, and there's a huge donut wide open it's not an mri it's not closed in and it is i don't know it's a minute maybe or less or a slightly more than that the machines nowadays talking about modernization are very fast very efficient and very high quality so it turns out they need less radiation to get us a good picture if we really really need high detail well, then that could always be followed up with a more sophisticated version, for example. But for screening, just like a mammogram, you kind of need a a general picture. And uh, But it's incredible what these scans can look like. Again, they're not new. They're just sort of being applied here. They're much, much better than a chest x-ray because of the level of detail. And very, very simple and easy. And then When it's done, just like a mammogram, the radiologist, assuming it's being read by a qualified radiologist sort of trained in this screening technique, there is a very simple scoring system that they use to let us know, are we worried? Are we not worried? And is there anything else you know, extraneous? Did we accidentally find some other problem? Keep in mind, it's a picture of the chest. So of course, it's the lungs. That's what we're talking about today. But it's the bones. It's the heart, a little bit of the liver, some stomach, maybe tops of the kidneys, a little bit of the spleen, thyroid may be included every once in a while, not often, but we'll pick up something entirely different, maybe an aneurysm that we catch before it ruptures or... Uh, severe emphysema or a thyroid nodule. So anyway, it's a, a basic, basic picture. And I will say that speaking of those who are at risk, heavy smokers, don't forget they're also at risk for heart disease and other lung disease like emphysema, which I just mentioned. So cancer, heart disease, and other lung disease all kind of picked up on one and the CT scan. The goal, of course, is picking up the lung cancer, but turns out if there is something else seriously wrong, we may be able to discover that as well.
2: I don't think anybody, Dr. Factor, is sitting there going, oh, that's me. Yeah, I think I I better go. No, I think they're going to have to wait until something spurs them in your direction. What would some of the symptoms be? Or their doctor might even notice it before them.
3: Here's the scary
2: thing. Lung
3: cancer is a silent killer, silent disease. So we cannot feel our lungs. Obviously, we can't feel our colon either. So you rely on the colonoscopy or we might be able to feel lump in a breast, of course. For lung cancer, there are symptoms. It usually means the disease is in at least the middle stage, if not later. So of course, you could have a cost. Or worse, maybe coughing up blood. But that would be a sign of a bit more serious tumor. But yes, anything wrong with our lungs, you know, naturally could give you a little cough. But it's not all that common to have a cough before the diagnosis unless it's in the late stages. Shortness of breath, really uncommon because it takes a lot to make us short of breath. A significant amount of lung needs to be blocked, if you will, to to not be functioning and then give you shortness of breath. Um, of course, cancers in general might make you fatigued. You know, slowing down a little bit. You know, losing weight. Now, these would be significant and worrisome signs that it's a more involved disease. Hoarseness, uh, not having a strong voice, maybe over a few weeks you develop hoarseness. I'm sure you're familiar with Peter Jennings, who was the the news anchor for ABC forever. Right. and when he announced that he had lung cancer he had a hoarse voice and i knew nothing of his case of course but i knew i don't remember what when that was in my career or training but i knew oh gosh that's not good news that would be uh, lymph nodes involved uh, in the left chest and they have attacked the the left side of the vocal cord it's a it's a strange anatomy thing and how we're built but uh, anyone who's in this knows lung cancer and then hoarseness, uh uh-oh, that's advanced, at least, uh, you know, spreading within the chest harder to treat. So symptoms are actually kind of late signs of the disease. So we can't rely upon those. Of course, that deserves attention if any of those things do come up. And notice some of them are fairly vague. So it can be hard just because, uh, you know, you're losing weight or something. It could be all kinds of reasons, not just cancer. So it can be hard to pinpoint um, and, and not a reliable way to figure out if you're not going to just wait for symptoms and then get attention. In other words, if we know you're at risk.
2: Ed Geisinger, you have this particular way of screening. Has it been used already? And what has uh, what have some of the responses been? The first
3: thing I'd like to say about that is that lung screening, lung cancer screening is a process and not just a test. And that's really, really important because Obviously, safety is the number one concern. And guess what? Healthcare is very complicated and it's not perfect and there can be harms. We, we all know that and probably all have examples of when things didn't quite go well. So it's a process. That CT scan is sort of the test that kicks it all off, if you will. And hopefully someday we'll have better things, maybe a more specific blood test. And we ain't there yet. They're, we're working on it, lots of ideas. Trust me, there's huge money to be made in those kinds of things if you're a you know lab company or pharmaceutical or something like that. So a lot of people are trying real hard to find those things. And we work with a lot of them, uh, those that are credible and have good ideas, to try to help uh, find that. But for now, it's that CT scan. And by that, by the process, what I mean is the team around that, because you need... Obviously, the qualified radiologist to read it properly. And, you know, any good radiologist can read a CAT scan, but we want dedicated chest radiologists and those who are familiar with this scoring system. And then what do we do with those results? How do we manage those results? Well, there are guidelines. That scoring system I mentioned, which is a simple one, two, three, four system, Whatever the the number is, you know, however scary the scan may look, the evidence tells us what we should do next. For example, if it's kind of a tiny little finding, it might be as simple as, okay, see you next year, we'll keep an eye on that, you know, similar to a mammogram with a very minor finding or a colonoscopy with a minor polyp that's not risky, you know, see you the next time. Um, Or maybe it's an in-between sized nodule, something like that, a spot in the lung, but not very big, maybe we're going to do another scan within three months or six months to recheck on it. Because it's not so easy to biopsy the lung, as you can imagine. So we're not always just reacting to whatever we find immediately. So it takes a team around that to know, okay, here's the result. And then here's what we should do based upon evidence. And there's it starts out with a very simple chart, almost like a cookbook as to what to do is the next step. But there are lots of nuances and healthcare is complex. So we have a whole team behind that that analyzes the results and works on the next steps. And of course, a, a comprehensive healthcare system like Geisinger, we have all of those next steps. We're not outsourcing anything to somewhere else, it's all within the house, if you will, and then that allows us to see our quality, and, and we can feed back the data to ourselves. If we're noticing that there are, you know, weaknesses in the process, uh, we can shore those up. And so, yes, this has been going on for quite some time. It's kind of an interesting story. Um, it, it has only relatively recently been covered by insurance. So. Specifically, 2015 is when Medicare started paying for um, the screen. I'm glad you brought that up. (laughs) Unfortunately, that was that was a question
2: that was coming next.
3: (laughs) Sure. And again, as I mentioned, with the the screening criteria, uh, you know, talking about the payment for it, it, it gets a little bit complex. Unfortunately, so Medicare actually said age 55. And but up to 77. So they decided to go a little lower than 80. But but let's not worry about that because the the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, that's kind of the task force that gives us these guidelines for breast screening, colon screening, et cetera, et cetera. It's not a political group, but an advisory group for the government and Medicare and, and all of us. So anyway, up to age 80. And so Medicare did start paying for it. And under the Affordable Care Act, these kinds of screening tests, including mammography and colonoscopy, as long as they are approved by the the task force I mentioned, all insurers are required, all private insurers are required to pay for this without any copay. Now, having said that, insurance is very complicated in this country. I don't understand very much of it, but I do know that there are lots of ways they can get around. Yeah, these insurance companies, have lots of ways of getting around it or their grandfather clause in that they can somehow they get around it. Medicare gets to decide for themselves, but within a year of a task force decision, the private insurers are supposed to be paying for it. And so, yes, yeah, it has been covered now for a little while. This year, the task force widened the eligibility so it, like i mentioned earlier it's ages 50 to 80 it was 55 to 80 so it's down to age 50 and down to 20 pack years as opposed to 30 pack years by the way 30 pack years that's a 20 cigarettes in a pack and you know do the math it's over 200,000 cigarettes 30 pack years is like 216,000 Cigarettes or something like that that somebody has smoked in their lifetime. Wow. So, anyway, it is covered, uh, but not for everybody, like I said, because insurance is so complicated. However, before it was well covered, many of the major institutions would offer the screening for free, the CT scan. The CT scan is relatively inexpensive, you know, compared to many other things that we do. Um, but knowing that. Abnormal findings were so common, relatively speaking, on these CAT scans, whether it's a lung nodule or something else, it usually leads to finding other things uh, in at least some percentage of people. And so for a big healthcare system, they can absorb the cost sometimes of these uh, initial CT scans, you know, because it's the right thing to do. and and ultimately things sort of have a way of working out as far as financially. They find ways to to make it work or have grants and things like that. Yes, we've been doing it. We do thousands a year. In the last little bit over a year, we have made it a completely comprehensive and centralized screening program so that we can ensure the highest quality and safety possible. Um, There are a few ways of of doing it like anything in life. Definitely seen many cancers found on screening. Many of them are early stage. So me as a lung cancer surgeon, early stage lung cancer is often treated with surgery. That's the most effective treatment for early stage lung cancer. Not everybody can tolerate lung surgery, however, so we work very closely with our radiation colleagues because sometimes pinpoint, specialized, easy-to-tolerate radiation is the better choice. And then in some exceptional cases, there's even a way to burn or freeze the tumor with the help of our friends in radiology, interventional radiology. So there's a little bit of a spectrum of treatment options, and yes, we are already seeing this uh, come to life as far as finding Cancers. What's very interesting, to give you an example, is there are two major classes of lung cancer. One is called small cell lung cancer, and the other is called non-small cell lung cancer. And I apologize. I know you would think I was going to say large there for a second, but instead it's non-small cell. Yes, large cell is one type of non-small cell. But anyway, small cell is very aggressive And we usually find it late. It spreads like wildfire in the body, basically. Well, interestingly, with screening, we are uh, noticing, and it's early, but that we are finding a bit more small cell lung cancer before it has spread. It's just in one single spot. And um, that's unusual to find it that early, although it's possible. So literally, 2021 alone, we have operated on four different people with small cell lung cancer when normally that's like once every five years maybe you'd operate on somebody with small cells because it's, it's not usually caught so early. Just an interesting kind of phenomenon, but a reflection of how screening can save lives.
2: Dr. Factor, we could go on because you find all these things And it could go in so many directions. That's the whole thing about medicine. You just never know what direction it's going in. So, Dr. Factor, if you would like to leave our listeners with one thought about the screenings, the lung cancer in general, what would they be?
3: Please talk with your doctor. If you have any questions or any doubts about this, just ask your doctor for the best advice.
2: Thanks once again to Dr. Matthew Factor, the director of the Lung Cancer Screening Program at Geisinger, for joining us. Now, don't go away. Coming up next, how oncologists could be affected by the President's Build Back Better Act on Special Edition. Next on Special Edition, we meet Ted O'Con, executive director of the Community Oncology Alliance. He's going to tell us how oncologists across the country could be affected by the President's Build Back Better Act.
0: Yeah, Paula, unfortunately, no matter what you think about the Build Back Better Act, it is truly broken for patients with cancer. If you look at the fine print in this sort of massive bill that Congress is trying to get through by the end of the year, it will end up costing patients with cancer more for their care while actually causing access problems in terms of accessing their care. And it's really a shame because when you look at this bill, this bill says, hey, the government will negotiate drug prices lower. And everybody says, that sounds great. Drug prices are too high. But the problem is the way it operationalizes that, it puts oncologists and other physicians in other areas of medicine in the middle of the negotiations between the drug maker and the government. And it does it in such a way that it would drastically reduce payments to oncologists in such a way that you can't keep the doors open. So you either have one or two choices. A, basically close your clinic, which is a real problem in in a lot of rural areas, or you merge into the hospital. And I'm not damning hospitals, but the cost of cancer care goes up exorbitantly when it's in the hospital system.
2: How? would people know when they hear this and they hear the catchphrases, whoever thought that oncologists would come out on the short end when everybody said drug prices are going to be lower? So how would you even know as a consumer?
0: You wouldn't know because as a consumer, you're looking at your cost, whether you have insurance or not. And you're looking at my cost for paying drugs has gone up dramatically. Certainly, Paula, if you have cancer, it's a very high cost. So you don't know. So when you hear we're going to negotiate with drug makers, meaning we the government are going to negotiate with drug makers and bring the cost down, on the surface you say, well, that sounds great. I want my drug prices to be less. But when you really understand how the government is going to do that and you understand how that gets implemented, you realize that you may have drugs that are cutting edge new innovative drugs that we have available to us, especially for cancer care, that all of a sudden we don't have available and find out that in the end run, if you have to go to your cancer care into the hospital where you're paying a lot more, Those drugs may cost you even more than they cost now. So on the surface, sounds great. When you understand the details of this massive bill, you say, doesn't sound great.
2: Can you give us a little bit of a background of the Community Oncology Alliance?
0: We are 20 years old as of next year, and we were really formed to advocate from the ground up cancer clinics to advocate for patients and their providers. So we're a national organization We really represent independent cancer care. That means cancer care that is is not associated with a hospital. And it's, in some cases, very large practices where you have over 500 oncologists. In some cases, very small practices where you have one, two, or three oncologists. And everything we do is around... The idea of providing the highest quality, most affordable cancer care locally in your own community. Have it accessible, Paula.
2: And when we're talking about cancer care, Ted, again, it touches everyone's life, no matter whether you're a patient, whether you know someone, whether you're a caregiver. But what's the worst that can happen here? I know you said that, you know, clinics could close, but what about as far as patient care is concerned?
0: It's a problem because over the last 12 years, the government has blundered several times. 1,700 cancer clinics have either closed their doors, especially in rural areas, or have been forced to merge into hospitals. And as you know, hospitals are buying up hospitals. And every time that happens, patients end up paying more. So we have a real problem in this country. And again, this doesn't have to happen in this Build Back Better Act. We're not saying getting in the middle and saying, don't pass it. We're saying fix it. Take providers out of the middle. Let the drug makers rebate the government directly for this negotiated rate, have patients paying off of the lower negotiated rate, but take providers out of it. Because every time the government does something like this from a policy perspective, They have dramatically increased the the cost of cancer care to all Americans and in some cases made it less accessible, Paula.
2: And if they do take the government out of it, then what happens to potential federal money that, on the other side, could help cancer patients?
0: I think, again, if they fix this Build Back Better Act in such a way that they take providers out of the middle... Then I think at least we we have a chance that there may be some good about good at this. I am concerned about the idea that when you the government negotiates drug prices, they basically fix the price of the drug. And we don't want to cause any ripples in the innovation of cancer drugs that we've seen. Because as you've said, Paula, cancer touches everybody. And the the good news is that we have More drugs, we have more treatments that are more effective that either can cure someone's cancer or at least keep it in remission that people can live and be survivors and live a long life. But we've got to be careful of what we do. That's why we've got to fix this specifically this Build Back Better Act.
2: Ted, so now from your perspective, what can we do, the consumers, the people who are on that front line?
0: But we've tried to make it easy, Paul, in this case, by literally putting up a website, fixbuildbackbetter.org, fixbuildbackbetter.org, people, whether they're actual cancer patients or caregivers or survivors or just individuals who are concerned because, as you said, it touches everybody, they can go to that site and learn more. And reach out to your senators. In the case of Pennsylvania, one of your senators who's a Democrat will vote for this. One is a Republican won't vote for this. But the one who won't for this, Senator Casey, is especially from our neck of the woods, Paula, and ask him to help get this bill fixed before it's too late.
2: Ted, it would be so much more advantageous if people would sit down and talk about this from the consumer's point of view.
0: Yeah. Unfortunately, what happens with government nowadays is uh, everybody talks about helping the consumer, but they don't talk to the consumer. They don't listen to the consumer. They don't understand what the consumer is about. They're in a bubble in Washington, D.C. That's not what America is about. (laughs) So They need to get out and understand what Pennsylvanians and others basically are facing and listen to them and bring them into the conversation.
2: Ted, I've heard it said before, nothing will ever change until we're all on the same level.
0: That's right. And at the end of the day, I don't care whether you're a Republican or you're a Democrat, you're independent. We are all Americans. And, you know, very often we're not rowing in the right direction. and We need to start rowing in the right direction. It, it's so important.
2: And from the top level down, we all have a potential of being Affected by cancer. Ted, thank you.
0: Thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me and have a great day.
2: Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the
0: personalities shaping the stories. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hiya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. Hey.